Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 350 charles's inheritance now then this is exciting but i feel a bit of a pause for reflection is both desirable and necessary at this point because who is there in the world that does not profit from pausing and reflecting unless possibly you are jimmy bond with two and a half seconds left to save the world from certain destruction and even then investing a half of the second of those two and a half in planning would probably be time well spent, wouldn't it? But more materially, since the world isn't in imminent danger of destruction just yet, as I sit writing, it is the 9th of August, and the last episode on politics was released way back in the midst of time when heroes roamed the earth on the 8th of May. So, if you're keeping pace with me, I would think you need a refresh, don't you? If you are not, of course, keeping pace with me, your eyes will probably roll at this point, and they may even be tutting. But look, bear with me. It is important to set proper expectations, I have found. And today, I warn you, there's going to be a certain amount of state of the nation kind of material. Probably not a lot of forward movement, if any. But to understand where you are going, you need to understand where you've come from, I would argue. Weakly, possibly. But then I have found confident assertion can stand in quite effectively when reasoned argument fails. The place we reached back in May was the death of James VI and I in March 1625, leaving Buckingham and Charles sobbing inconsolably over the loss, respectively, of friend and master and father. Buckingham reigns supreme in the world of politics and patronage, and there is no sign that will change with the arrival of Charles, who appears 
thoroughly bowled over with this charismatic elder brother type figure, though not to the loss of all sense of his own duty, it should be said, he's capable of saying no to him on occasion. An alliance has been constructed with France and a marriage ceremony held in France with Henrietta Maria, the sister of Louis XIII. Henrietta Maria, who is just 15, is expected any time soon in England. She'll probably bring a few close friends with her to boot, say, I don't know, a thousand or so. This rapprochement with La France Glorieux has come about partly because they were the only nation left standing who could pay a dowry worth the candle, but mainly because Charles and James's previous policy, the Spanish match, had crashed and it had burned. Charles needed friends to achieve his most compelling foreign policy objective to put his sister Elizabeth and her hub, Frederick, back on their throne of Bohemia, from whence they'd been unceremoniously turfed by the Holy Roman Emperor. Charles, and even Buckingham, were as popular in 1625 as they had ever been, and probably as popular, without wanting to spoil the story, as they will ever be. Because in switching to an anti-Spanish policy, they had filled their subjects' collective breast with joy, though possibly not for reasons entirely contingent with Buckingham and Spain's breasts. Their subjects were much more focused on the religious aspect of dropping the Spanish match than the dynastic considerations around Elizabeth and France and all that sort of thing, although they would accept the king's right to be interested in the might and reputation of nations too, right enough. Charles and Buckingham had rather been enjoying slipping on the wetsuits of populism, climbing aboard the soft top of politics and riding the wave of people's approval. That is my attempt to be down with the kids in the use of surfing slang, how'd I do? Charles's father was more clear-sighted than his son and had warned them both that they would live to regret their populist bit of fun specifically the use of impeachment to remove Buckingham's enemies and using popularity in Parliament to agitate against government policy. That was not what an early modern Parliament was for, and they were going to be the government for soon anyway. Now, it might be now what Parliament is for now, but it was categorically not back then. Parliament was an occasional meeting called by the monarch to connect and build consensus together with his people hear and address their grievances, and ask for money if required at times of crisis. It was not for policy formation. That was the arcane mystery and job of the king, his privy council, and his court. Even if a king might ask Parliament for their views, every now and again, when the mood took him, it definitively wasn't a parliamentary right or requirement. So, that's where we'd got to. The period we are entering is a brightly coloured and frankly over-furnished five-year period from 1625 to 1630, as over-furnished as a Victorian boudoir. It's a particularly fascinating period, not just because it's packed with incident, which is, you know, normal to be honest, but because it's around about here we all start rootling around looking for causes. Cause of the Armageddon that's going to follow. What happened to kick things off? Had it already started? Did it start here? So specifically, 
Let's say, you and I, that there are three themes we should cover in these five years. I mean, there may be other things, but three big things. First of all, the various pathways into which foreign policy leads Charles and the consequences of same. Then, the religious settlement that emerges from the start of the reign. Though, don't expect any great acts of parliament or something. It's not like the Elizabethan settlement. It's much more quiet than that, more subtle gov. And then there is all the constitutional politics in Parliament, wherein we ask the hill of beans question. Obviously, all the toing and froing sounds quite exciting that goes on. But do we constantly over-egg that particular pudding? I mean, once Parliament is not sitting anymore, people just go back to their parishes and get on with things. So maybe all that verbiage it produces, all that hot air when it's sitting, is not all that important, in fact. Meanwhile, also, by the way, there is Henrietta Maria to bring into the story. So, there are our themes for the next few years. Alice Clarke? Right. Now, it is at this point that I find myself impaled on some horns. I'm imagining some sort of shaggy cattle who raised its head to look at this walker that has appeared in its field and caught it by accident. No malice intended, but the horns of the beast, let's call it the dilemma are nonetheless uncomfortable. So what I want to do is introduce Charles properly and talk about what he's like. Because I don't think we've really done that specifically though, have we? Although I think it's entirely possible I have forgotten I'm getting a bit like that. But talking about all his successes and failures and what made him tick and all that does seem a little like putting the cart before the horse. That is to say, it might be best to let his character emerge from the clay of events as we go along. So what I'll do to try and square this particular circle is to keep things minimal for the moment and talk about what we do know in 1625 about Charles and then we can let the rest emerge as we go on. The first thing that has always occurred to me ever since I started taking an interest in these sorts of things, which was some time ago, I should add, is that Charles I is an unlikely villain. I mean, I accept villains come in all shapes and sizes. You can't always spot them by the bloody severed body parts they carry around in their lunchbox. But I mean, Charles surely doesn't come across as material for a blood-soaked tyrant. He will be very much a family man. OK, he and Henrietta Maria struggle a bit, early doors, as we'll hear. But they both make a significant recovery after a dodgy kick-off and end up looking rather cute together. And he doesn't play away, unlike most kings. He is careful controlled and correct to the point of fastidiousness in his personal life. So we had a discussion a while back, if you remember, about how the royal court was supposed to be this model of moral behaviour and religious rectitude and set an example to the nation, and how under James's louche, wildly informal and sexually heterogeneous leadership, it looked anything but that to the censorious country. Well, that changes under Charles. On a personal level, he divides up his day into coffee spoons. He has impressive self-control. Not for him a snack attack at midnight with an illegal bowl of cornflakes and a mountain of milk and sugar. He divided his day into early rising, prayers, exercises, audiences, business, eating and sleeping. He waters down his wine, ladies and gents. He waters down his wine. He expected a similarly high level of propriety from his court and generally got it. The sweariness and informality of his father's day, that was all gone. And, to a degree, so 
was the financial incontinence, and that's a big thing. And then he's a cultured sort of chap. I mean, one observer says this creates a distance between monarch and subject. Charles is an informed and discerning collector of art in a way that was quite out of the ordinary, even for the elite at that time. He really sets a trend there, along with a chap called Henry Arundel. But rather than that being a bad thing, that he creates this difference, he does things differently because, you know, he's a king, isn't that what people wanted from a monarch? Especially a monarch they saw as semi-divine. You don't want him to be just like the guy around the corner who's much given to passing wind during the parson's sermon and looking around at the rest of the congregation for applause, do you? I mean, I put it to you that you want some magnificence, decorum, difference, finery. Certainly, the Tudors had gone in for that big time from Henry VII onward, and it seemed to work for them right enough. Just to break off, this period we're going into seems to present a couple of characters we find very very difficult to evaluate. Both Charles I and Cromwell remain somehow a bit beyond our grasp. For example, Austrian Woolrich, whose Britain in Revolution I commend unto you as a great textbook, says absolutely flatly, with some relief, as one of the things we can safely say, that Charles was totally humorless. Well then, Mark Kishlansky comes straight back in with a couple of examples of great Charles I gags. I mean, to be fair, rib ticklers they ain't. But that famous line when arrested by Cornet Joyce is surely not bad. The one where Joyce comes to arrest him without being able to produce any documentation uh, because he hasn't got any documentation and Charles looks at the grisly-looking troopers around him and says that his instructions were in fair characters and legible without spelling. I mean, you know, it's not going to top the music hall billing but it shows a sense of humour, I would opine, if opining is something anyone should ever give in to. Anyway, does that count as digression? So, he's controlled and expects a good, decorous behaviour from his court. His court becomes a beacon of culture and morality, although, to be fair, it does remain alarmingly religiously pluralistic, which we might applaud now, but which was not a matter for applause to your 17th century citizen of any religious persuasion. Clarendon wrote of him, admittedly Clarendon or Edward Hyde, that is, was something of a fan, that he was of the most harmless disposition and the most exemplar piety, the greatest example of sobriety, chastity and mercy that any prince has been imbued with. But while Teddy Baby may be biased, the Venetian ambassador had no such inclination, and yet he wrote him also that Charles showed signs of being temperate, moderate, and of exchanging all the prodigality of the past for order and profit. Charles was, of course, a Scot, born in Dunfermline Castle in 1600, though he was in England from 1603 to 1633 before going back to the land of his fathers, so anglicised pretty thoroughly, though he would always be deeply conscious of his dignity as a King of Scotland and retain Scottish councillors around him and manage Scottish affairs separately to English. He'd had rickets when he was young and apparently was rather late to walk. Oh, and wasn't he stolen by a monkey when a baby and got into a scrap in the garden with a young Cromwell? No to the last two, by the way. He was five foot four and famously had a stammer, which didn't seem to make him an ineffective speaker. He just compensated by keeping it brief. 
which parliamentarian listeners seem to rather appreciate after enduring vast rambling from his predecessor and, to be sure, to be fair, which they will expect to suffer from his successor as protector, it must be said. As his people would expect, he was deeply religious. The structure of his religious beliefs will be a bit of a problem, actually, which we'll come to in its proper hour. But there was no lack of commitment to what he saw as the true Church of England and to personal piety. His relationship with his folks seems also to be a matter of debate, a relationship with Anna Denmark described at once as loveless and, as on the other hand, as indulgent. Well, Philip Relakin reminded us of what parents inevitably do to their children one way or t'other, but exactly how they achieve that is anyone's guess in this particular case. But he does seem to have taken James's very high views on the extent of royal authority to heart. I think it is fair for me to say this early on, that Charles is also very conscientious. Oddly, in terms of his approach to business, this is very disputed. Another one where Charles Carlton, for example, flatly describes him as lazy. Essentially that Charles would hand out orders well enough but lacked the attention to detail to drive it through to a conclusion whereas Austrian Woolrich writes that he worked harder at the business of government than his father would ever have done, that there's none of the tearing up and down to find the king because he was too busy hunting to do any work. Maybe he should have been in receipt of one of those horrid aphorisms that business inflicts on us about working smarter rather than working harder. Who knows? Maybe it's too early to move on to the duplicitous thing Maybe that's something that should emerge either way from events, but I feel moved to make some sort of comment now. Charles shows none of that unattractive tendency to blame someone else for his faults and failures. I mean, you can argue very powerfully, I think, that this is partly because he doesn't recognise his egregious errors that stand out more dramatically than Cromwell's warts as such. But he doesn't hide behind his ministers. He doesn't as easily throw them to the wolves like a Henry VIII or his dad even. So, for example, when there's a deal of military crashing and burning going on off the holiday isle of, of the Isle of Ray, for example, he takes it on the chin and he takes it on his chin. He fronts up, good and proper. It is a most attractive personal quality to take the blame. Whether it's wise or not is an entirely different matter. Maybe the answer is in the 180 degree difference between the King versus Cromwell thing in Henry and Charles. I'll leave the inflexible, unwilling to compromise thing, of course, which he is accused of, because that is a real poser. Whether he compromises effectively or in the right place is very moot, but he does at various points compromise, such as when he does, to his undying personal sense of shame, throw Strafford to said walls in extremis. So we will see what you think. But there is a line of argument I ask you at least to keep in mind as we place our collective foot on the first step of this pathway that goes that Charles may not be our worst monarch. He may just be our most unlucky one. The contemporary William Lyley, an astrologer and as someone who can read the stars, obviously an expert, wrote, For my part, I do believe he was not the worst, but the most unfortunate of kings. Now, obviously, not the worst doesn't look great on the end-of-term report either, but another contemporary puts it a bit more positively than that. Wisdom and reason were not wanting in that noble king. 
fortune was. So that's the king, and what I think we might safely say at this point about his characteristics. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. What about his situation? The problems with which he had to deal. Was he handed a poison tankard and that all he had to do was touch his divinely appointed cherry lips to the rim to fall down dead from poison? Or really, was he quite safe to draw deeply on the real ale of life? Am I stretching a metaphor here? Be honest. I might point out that I come to this from a slightly different angle than I might once have done. I glory, of course, in Anglo-centricity, hence the very title of my podcast, and determination to use the illegal phrase English Revolution, which is enough alone to consign me to the deepest torch chambers of history, hell. But it just so happens that I also produce a history of Scotland. Have I mentioned that? All you have to do is pay a poultry membership fee of chicken feed, and there is a history of Scotland available to you from pre-zip to 1660. Go and fill up your boots via the historyofscotland.co.uk or indeed the historyofengland.co.uk. Anyway, the material point, apart from that tawdry piece of self-advertisement, is that I had been through the wars of the three kingdoms already. And if you would like a book that brings over the complexity of that very well in not a lot of pages, then you might try another book I'm going to recommend you just now called The Wars of the Three Kingdoms, 1642 to 1649 by one David Scott. I can tell you, the complexity of dealing with three kingdoms, all of them very different, in different ways, is absolutely mind-bending. I mean, you do one thing here, and that inevitably means this thing over there will fall over, if you're in a kinging business. Or at the very least, the job spec should include the requirement for flexibility that would make Nadia Comaneci look like a plank. Having said that, to then take a step back, let's look at the state of the nations. And that probably does not mean, when we've done all the looking and weighing up, that the job was undoable. Now, historians love developing new frameworks and grand unifying theories, guts. Not for the sake of neatness, I don't believe, but because they can produce interesting new insights, different ways of looking at the same stuff. And after all, rewriting history is literally the job of a historian. So one of these guts is the idea of a general crisis of the 17th century that afflicted all the major states of Europe and had common themes. And it's a five-minute job to tot up all the disasters that afflict the French, Habsburg, Germans, Danish, Spanish, Swedish... Eastern European states and entities during the century. It's a difficult time for everyone, to be fair. Which is one of the things that makes Claire Jackson's book, Devil Land, such a hoot. The marketing blurb of said book is all about what a train smash continental observers think the British Isles are. Well, look in the mirror, guys. 30 years war and all. Look in the mirror. Moats, planks, that sort of thing. It is a fun book, though. Anyway, 
general crisis, that's what we're talking about. Despite the complexity of Three Kingdoms, James's bequest to his heir doesn't look as though it's in crisis, is the theme of the rest of this podcast. And it is worth reflecting that the complexity is not particularly unique to the northern archipelago, nor the outcomes any more or less bloody. There will be an horrendous death rate through the civil wars, particularly in Ireland and England, but also Scotland, less so in Wales maybe. But Spain has all those problems on integration, particularly with Catalonia and the revolt there between 1640 and 1652. France has enormous complexity across its regions with feudal rights of self-government and the violent upheaval of the Fronde and the revival of the religious wars. And then the horrendous millions of deaths in Germany, as we have covered in the past. So, complexity, violence, fun times. The northern archipelago has its own flavour, some of which famously we're still living with, but the challenges Charles has faced were not necessarily exceptional, nor the outcomes particularly bloody. And it must be said he had some advantages. England and Wales in particular was a model of political unity, with a shared administrative system with almost none of the complexity of France and Spain, with all their local institutions and franchises. Thomas Cromwell had swept those away, the clever chap, such as they had remained from the chaos that the Normans had imposed on the beauty of Anglo-Saxon England. Never too late to get a Norman yoke jibe in. There was none of the problems that the French monarchy had with overmighty subjects. The Tudors again had dealt with all of that. There were none of the judicial and feudal magnate rights as existed in France and Scotland, incidentally. One of the wrinkles here is that the nobility in England was tiny compared to France. Many landowners that would qualify as noble in France or indeed in Scotland were in England merely commoners without any, therefore, sp special rights. They were gentry and therefore didn't even have the residual rights of the old, old feudal nobility. Not that in England those amounted to very much. Unlike in France, where nobility were exempt from taxation, the English nobility paid taxes, though to be fair, they were pretty good at using their local influence to duck them. If you want to break down those numbers, which can be handy, and I'm sure you do, because people like numbers, don't they? Here come some stats for you. Paper and pencil, ready? Though remember, transcripts are available at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. So, taking 1633 as our baseline. Total population of England and Wales, about 4.75 million. Lay peerage in England, barons up to dukes, we're talking here, about 122 families. The idea that this lot were in terrible financial and hereditary trouble, by the way, espoused once by Lawrence Stone, has effectively been exploded. They were doing fine with all those groceries, poor lambs. Then there's the gentry, who themselves have various flavours from the 300 or so baronet families at the top, those who could afford to buy into James's little money-making wheeze. There were then about 1,500 knights, then seven to 9,000 esquires. Esquires had annual landed income averaging around 500 quid a year. An agricultural labourer, for point of comparison, might generate about £10 a year. Most MPs came from all of these classes we've just talked about, in the House of Lords and the House of Commons, House of Lords for nobility, obviously, Commons for the rest. And then there are the ten to 14,000 gentlemen 
which is a poorly defined category, mainly landed to, though often with mercantile or professional roots, or still just merchants. A gentleman and a gentlewoman, as a definition, might not be tightly described, but in Jacobean England, do you know? You'd know what they look like on the what they look like, walk like, smell like principle. And we'll talk about lawyers at some point, which is one major route for entry and maintenance of the status of gent. I think I'm repeating old ground here to a degree, but it's worth keeping fresh, I suppose, and worth reminding you that despite the growth and success of the gentry class financially over the last century, there's no great sign of a nationwide split between old and new gentry. There were fallers and risers, and compared to French society, because these folks are all commoners, it's all relatively fluid, getting in and out and falling up and falling down is relatively easy. There are leavers and joiners. Though it could take a generation or two for a husbandman's family, for example, to become accepted as a gentleman. Husbandmen belong to that middling sort, the slightly unsatisfactory term for small farmers and tenant farmers, craftsmen, shopkeepers and so on. And this lot have also done relatively well over the last hundred years, though probably not flourishing quite to the degree that they were in, say, the Netherlands, but still doing okay. Generally literate now, politically engaged and aware, especially in the larger towns, and London, of course. And just to finish the story, uh, as you know, the preceding century had not been kind to the smaller tenant farmer and wage labourer who were hit by rising prices and population increase, and therefore underemployment. Maybe the best that can be said, although it's a reasonably low bar of satisfaction, are two things. However reluctantly and patronisingly paid sometimes, England and Wales had a more generous and structured provision of poor relief than any other European country once it had dumped the ramshackle system of monasteries. And the economy had developed enough sophistication and flexibility that now, did they but know it, there would be no more famines in England and Wales. The last was in 1623 and was very regional itself. This was not to be the same in Scotland or France. One further thing, though. England and Wales were still a minnow, Europe-wise. I did a chart for 1600 that I'll pop on Tinternet again. France is the gorilla at 18.5 million people. Spain and Portugal had about 11 million people. Italy, 13 million. Germany, 15 million before the Thirty Years' War came along and decimated it. The Netherlands, I think, is smaller than... Uh, the UK, about 3 million, I think. So, we're about mid-table, safe from relegation, to use a frankly useless and almost misleading metaphor. I feel I have spoken too long on that. So, um, the state of the nation. A few other general observations Austrian Woolrich makes seem relevant here. One is to remind you all of the way England and Wales were governed through a rather delightful system of partnership directly between crown and locality, local government at the king's command, the monarchical republic of the parish. The gentry and middling sort governed their parishes and regions. I think we covered this back in episodes 282 and 283 if you want to go and find out more. The knights and the higher gentry 
They ran the regional organisations, such as being local magistrates and MPs, and interacted with agents of the centre in the form of assize judges, and generally tried to behave in line with the orders that they were sent with by central government. Lords Lieutenant managed local militia and were often noble. But they had lots of sub-lieutenants amongst the gentry. Now, the system had enormous strengths. It was as cheap as chips to start. It built high levels of local engagement in the business of governance and a feedback mechanism between centre and court. But it also had major drawbacks if you happened to be in the process of kinging as well. It required very high levels of consent for it to work. Quite difficult for a monarch to just go off on one and bully anyone into doing it because, you know, they were a bit open to the immortal OK, so fire me then line after all, you don't pay me. Secondly, ironically, it helped keep the monarch poor. Because while France was developing a nationwide system of royal intendants and a standing army to enforce the power of the centre over the regions with taxation to boot, the children's stewards were not and had less justification for developing taxation thereby. Also, Elizabeth frankly ducked the challenge. She couldn't claim Cecil, after all, hadn't told her that she needed to reform the antiquated taxation system. So, English monarchs were as poor as church mice. Plus, the big one, they possessed no big stick. They had the velvet glove, but not the iron fist. On the continent, there were standing armies all over the place now because they were kicking the bejesus out of each other regularly. And technology being what it, where it was, a core professional army was now the absolute entry requirement to be involved in said kicking without just being the kicked. The cry of, the English are coming, the English are coming, would raise little more than a giggle in the war councils of Europe. The English spoke with a soft voice and carried a small twig. You know what I'm saying with the possible exception of the Navy. But we have just seen a good example of the mighty expedition of English arms under Count Mansfield, which ended up simply mm, dying. So the English monarchy was poor and had no means of repressing their people or fighting effective foreign wars, and much of the fault of that was down to Parliament. Shall we talk about the other kingdoms then, Ireland and Scotland? I don't want to overflog this particular course again because I know we have spoken of it, but the super summary is that they are all different. The population of Ireland, around 1.4 million in 1600, but growing fast to 2.1 in 1641, as frequently discussed, is still to an extent divisible into Gaelic Irish or Old Irish, Old English and New English. But beware. The Reformation has thrown the cards up in the air again, so these simple divisions are not quite as useful as they once were, and that will be a feature of the Irish Revolt. They're not as useful at all. Because there will be trouble ahead, I can promise that. The Old English were less and less trusted by the centre with their persistent Catholicism, and the growing concentration of power, therefore, into the hands of the new English of the Pale and migration from England alienated the Old English too. The Church of Ireland was proving most ineffective at spreading the Protestant word and became effectively an organisation concentrated on supporting the pale rather than evangelising in the country. Meanwhile, the plantations in Ulster and elsewhere had introduced a new element, 100,000 English and Scottish Protestants, and the displacement in Ulster of many, though not all, of the traditional families. So, 
there were new loyalties, new alliances possible, appearing and disappearing and shifting. Scotland, with the smallest population of about one million, was different again, unlike Ireland, whose parliamentary institutions were legally subservient to Westminster and England. Scotland was an entirely different independent kingdom, always had been, and was very conscious and proud of their 300 year of unbroken succession under the Stuarts. Their institutions of government and law were entirely independent and different to those of England. However, they were Protestant, though the Reformation had followed very different lines to England and Wales, a bottom-up, loudly and noble-inspired Reformation forced through against the wishes of the Crown through rebellion. The influence of reformers like John Knox and Andrew Melville and philosophers like George Buchanan had produced an interesting dynamic. The theory of two kingdoms, ladies and gentlemen, of God and a king. And the one was not to interpose on the other, and the one of God was, of course, the greater. The idea and structure of a Presbyterian religious structure had sprung up, encouraged by the weak position of Queen Mary and the long minority of James. The Presbyterian structure meant management of the church by local church elders, with the bishops either marginalised or effectively removed from the picture. At one stage during James's minority, although the diocesan system remained in principle as part of the church, there were no bishops actually in place. So powerful became the idea of the two kingdoms that Reformation historiography claimed that the reformed Scottish church had never had bishops. Actually, this was completely untrue. It wasn't until the 1580s that the Presbyterians even decided bishops were not compatible with the Bible. But after all, the bishops were the monarch's agents. And now, according to the radical Protestants, the king had no role in the management of the church. That lay with the annual General Assembly. Scotland, however, was far less unified than England and Wales. Even in lowland Scotland, magnates held enormous local power, judicial power through the control of courts, hereditary sheriffs and regal rights, as well as through land ownership. Although the influence of the lairdly class was growing, they were still very much under the influence of the peers. Remember that, while the lairds were in a sense equivalent to the English gentry, they were noble, holding their land directly from the king nor the monarch. Even more significant, though, were the regional differences between the lowlands and the western isles and highlands. The same might once have applied to the northern isles as well, but there, lowland lairds were in the process of effectively completing its colonisation, and so their points of difference were becoming far less, though not nothing. But the highlands and western isles were something else. Continual half-hearted attempts had been made to integrate the Highlands into a combined Scottish polity based on the Lowland model, broadly, by the Scottish Crown, and changes had been created that ate away at the Gallic clan-based laws and land ownership model. James IV had partially introduced a contract basis for land holding from the monarch, for example, that competed uneasily with the Gallic notions of a clan-based land ownership. In the 15th century, famously, power of the Macdonalds, the great lords of the Isles, had been broken, but never effectively replaced. So the Macdonalds kept resurfacing. And meanwhile, one of the magnates set up by the crown to be their eyes and ears in the Highlands and Islands, the Campbells, were so powerful that they were rather like the Macdonalds. I'll come back to the Campbells and to their northern compares 
the Gordons in just a mo. I hate to wobble on about this, but it's important. The differences went deep into the very basis of lordship and society. Highland societies were still managed through an old run-rig arrangement, where much of the land was held and managed in common, quite similar to open-field farming. The lowlands, like England, had been going through the commercialisation process of enclosure and reduction in commons, lowland versions of the wildly notorious later clearances in the highlands. There's a strongly held idea that the highlands remained Catholic. The truth is a bit more complicated. Essentially, like Ireland, the process of evangelisation didn't really happen. And so when the old church was removed, there's a sort of confused interregnum. Where lords like the Campbells were powerful and Protestant, Calvinism spread successfully enough. Where they were not, it did not. Sometimes Catholic practice survived. In some cases, weird hybrids appeared in what was a vacuum, effectively. The reason why evangelism did not take place was that the Lowland Scots viewed the Gallic Highlands with suspicion and often fear. It was physically a weird place without major roads and difficult communications. They had their own language, of course, up there, and the last monarch to speak it was James IV. So, while the strength of the Gallic tradition in Scottish history was still acknowledged as the, the roots and origin of the nation, there was a major split between Highland and Lowland in language, culture, religion and identity, where Calvinism was a core part of the early modern Lowland Scottish identity. In the Highlands, it wasn't. The Scottish Parliament even proposed that the Gallic language should be abolished, wiped out. James VI had tried setting up plantations in the islands with lowlanders. They were soon driven out, though. James then rather retreated from that policy and did it in Ireland instead. But under the Statute of Iona in 1609, he laid down in law that Gallic noblemen should have their elders taught in English. But the failure of a consistent and active policy of integration meant that during the 16th and early 17th centuries, the differences actually grew between Highland and Lowland, and the bards sang freely in the halls of the Gallic lords. Very often, this means actually that in the Highlands, they're way more interested in what's going on next door than what's going on nationally or internationally or on all these civil wars. They're only interested in giving the Campbells a bit of a kicking. I should boil all that down and try and make it relevant to you. First of all, regional magnates were hugely powerful, especially in the Highlands. The most powerful and a real mover and shaker were the Calvinist Campbell Earls of Argyll, as close as the Highlands and Islands came to replacing the MacDonald Lords of the Isles. And that will make me very unpopular to put it in that way, probably. By the way, they had a usurped MacDonald power, uh, was widely and deeply and furiously hated. And there would be a reckoning, ladies and gentlemen. Meanwhile, the Gordon Earls of Huntley, around Aberdeen in the northeast, were also very powerful, as the monarchs identified replacement of the Macdonalds in the northern highlands. And they were fiercely Catholic. Finally, links between Gallic Scotland and Gaelic Ireland were very close. It's only a hop, skip and jump, after all, between the two. So there's that, and that will be relevant in what follows. So to summarise, the unity of Scotland is intimately tied up with the Stuart monarchy, to a degree wildly in excess of England. And indeed the same applies to Ireland, of course. Loyalty to the monarch was the most powerful, unifying thing there was. 
Other potentially unifying institutions like law or parliament had little veneration to compare with that. The church had a similar hold in Scotland and indeed in Ireland, but only in the lowlands of Scotland, whereas in England, common law was revered. Parliament was widely identified more and more with the defence of the rights and identity of the ordinary people, even in opposition to the monarchy. So there is something of a mix across the three kingdoms and indeed connections across them. Religion-wise, it's a bit of a mix, so just to state the obvious, if you try and impose a Scottish-style Calvinist religion in Ireland, there'll be mm, trouble. If you try to big up bishops in Scotland, there'll be trouble. If you suggest that Catholicism had its good bits we should really revive in England, there will be grief. So, sensitivity required at all times. Ireland has its own proud ruling elite. Scotland is an entirely different country with its own form of governance. The king is the only common thing to both it and England and Wales. My head explodes just thinking about it. But here's the big question. Is this therefore just a train smash waiting to happen? And well, now the answer is no. No one said being a king was easy, or indeed a bowl of cherries, but in none of the kingdoms was there much sign of rebellion when Charles came to the throne. In Ireland, the violence of the Nine Years' War had been brought to a conclusion, and despite the resentment you would absolutely assume would be boiling away from the plantations and the restrictions on Catholic involvement in public life, there's actually not much sign of it. Part of the reason for this was the foot was off the pedal of Catholic persecution from the state. In practice, Catholics pursued their religion in relative openness. The great families employed priests who carried out services in the communities. Evangelising from Protestants was little to be seen. The old English and Gaelic lords, who had made their peace with the crown, dominated local politics and even the slowly expanding English institutions of shires, courts and JPs. Clearly, such an ignoring of basic equities was no great basis for national unity for the long term, but there was apparently no burning platform at this point in time. In Scotland, James had proved a highly effective ruler. He managed parliaments superbly, he had a talent for establishing a relationship with his peerage based on a deep respect that he held for the institutions and traditions of nobility himself. He filled all the vacant posts of the bishoprics, and re-established monarchy at the heart of church governance, building on an alliance with moderate ministers who regarded the monarch's traditional role as perfectly reasonable. And he'd banished the radical Andrew Melville to the continent. He made a misstep with the five articles of Perth, which tried to impose practices like kneeling for communion, which enraged the Calvinist heartlands. But no matter, he and the bishops kind of let those articles ride. They didn't implement the provisions very harshly at all. James had managed to rule Scotland extremely effectively from a distance when he went down to England. Charles had Scottish advisers around him like the Earl of Mar and the Marquis of Hamilton to provide advice for his Scottish Privy Council. In England, as we've heard, despite the twos and throes of Parliament, James's reign had ended on something of a high with his last Parliament, especially since the Spanish match had become the Spanish Natch. And James had created and maintained a careful balance in the church, separatists were a tiny, tiny, squeaky-voiced minority. The Calvinist bishops largely ruled the roost, and the Elizabethan settlement seemed as secure as ever, despite the appeals of Arminianism. So it wasn't easy, 
But all that was required, or what was required rather than all that was required, was a deal of statesmanship, flexibility and balance, the kind of thing that the loose and apparently chaotic James had managed really rather well, including the ability to shelve pet projects like amalgamating the three kingdoms into one polity under the same law and religion, calling it Great Britain, such as James had wanted to do, but just let drop. And anyway, what were the chances of all three kingdoms cutting up rough at exactly the same time anyway? And as long as control was maintained in two out of three, let's say, the monarch would have the resources to ride out any trouble, you'd think. The king was, of course, the linchpin to all of this, it's got to be said. So, Let's see how Charles gets on, shall we, next week. There we go, then. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And it's really nice to be back on the hamster wheel of chronology. Now, I have seen a few reviews recently on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, and I wanted to say thank you very much for the lovely things that people say. I really do appreciate it. It makes a massive difference. It's a joy to get emails from you, and all the comments that pop up on the website are great. Except that one from the prince with all the money he's trying to give away, and which I never receive when I send my small cheque, unaccountably. Apart from him, though, thank you very much. Good luck then, everyone, and have a great week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.